Hello, and welcome to Missing an Audience. In each episode, a different guest from the arts world will talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected their practice, how they see things changing going forwards, and about their memories of being part of or creating for audiences. Our aim with this podcast is to hear from and reach as many different people working or studying in the arts as possible, to connect over what we miss and have lost, what we have to look forward to, and what needs to change. We also hope to spread awareness of charities or arts groups struggling at this time. We need the arts, and we need audiences. Culture is for entertainment, protest, education, therapy, employment, inspiration and connection. It must survive. Our guest today is stage manager Damien Stanton. A graduate of Mountview Academy of Theatre Arts, Damien has worked on both national and international tours, including numerous productions with the award-winning theatre company Antic Disposition. Among his most notable credits are Pinocchio at the National Theatre, Les Liaisons Dangereuses at the Donmar Warehouse, Oppenheimer at the RSC and the Vaudeville, Matilda and Beauty and the Beast. Before COVID-19, he was working on the musical adaptation of Sleepless in Seattle at the Wembley Troubadour, starring Jay McGuinness and Kimberly Walsh. Sleepless will now open for performances from the 1st of September, becoming one of the first major productions to operate under social distancing guidelines, government advice pending. During lockdown, Damien co-founded the Theatre Support Fund, which has become an online sensation and provides funds for three core charities, Acting for Others, the Fleabag Support Fund, and the NHS COVID-19 Urgent Appeal. Their extensive range of the show must go on merchandise now includes t-shirts, face masks, mugs, notebooks, tote bags, and more, and has been endorsed on social media by the likes of Patti LuPone and Dame Judi Dench. Hello, I'm Jake Leonard. I'm the host and creator of this podcast, and I'm a freelance theatre director. So, Damien, thanks very much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, you know. You have been very productive in lockdown, haven't you? (laughs) Well, the beginning I really wasn't. I was quite happy to have a few days off, but then like week two and three set in, and it was like you know, it wasn't great because it got to a point where I felt really lethargic and I was like, okay, well, maybe this is going to be longer. And, you know, all the things in the news at that point in the UK got worse and worse and we were getting to, you know, really high numbers. And then, and then, yeah, so it was, it was kind of that. And we, you know, we'd watched all the Netflix and we had baked all the cakes that you could physically bake until there was no flour left in anywhere in the country. We started getting that government, the offer of government support at that time. They'd finally realised that self-employed people existed. and But, you know, there were, I'm sure you know as well, there were loads, of, there's loads of people who fell through, who have fallen, are still falling through all of the support gaps. Theatre is so much more than the people you see on stage, you know, and I, th- I think sometimes people forget that. It's also easy to forget that because that's the thing you see, that's the people you see on in the programme, you know, on the signage outside, but it takes hundreds of thousands of people to run the theatre industry. And I think, you know, it was important for us that, you know, if you needed some help and you needed some money, then it was there and so we me and a friend who uh, a friend Chris who runs one half of Marcus Hall Prop what we found interesting was that in America 
Broadway League had set up a COVID-19 fund to sort of raise money for Broadway. Mm-hmm. And there was that show, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber was doing his Shows Must Go On series, mm-hmm. but that was raising money for Broadway. And it kind of felt like no one was raising money for the West End. So we decided, we were like, maybe we could do something. What could we do to try and raise a little bit of cash? And we came up with this idea of doing a charity t-shirt. First, we were like, oh, what would go on it? Like, oh, I feel like, you know, the phrase, the show must go on because it's poignant in our, in our industry. The first t-shirt was hideous. We were like, right, well, we need to create like a brand for it to go under. So we created the Theatre Support Fund. That sounds proper. It's funny now because now here we are eight weeks later and we have sold something like 23,000 t-shirts. And now we have raised, I think, just under £300,000. The money we were aiming to raise is for British theatre. It's not, not just for you know, a London-centric thing. The design is made up of the logos of 16 different musicals. And we sort of, there were certain things we wanted, like Come From Away has the globe in their logo, which is just a really nice element. And Book of Mormon has the doorbell. And then we basically came up with this design and mocked it up on Photoshop and then sent it out to all of the producers on the 16 shows and, and basically had two weeks of sort of waiting and desperately waiting Thankfully, no one said no. The first producer that came back to us and said we'd love to be a part of this was Disney. The one that we we were expecting Disney to be quite difficult, you know, because we thought there's no way that they're going to just hand over their artwork to us. And they were the first one. And then the second one that followed was Dear Evan Hansen. So once kind of once we had them, every time we got a show, we used it as like a bit of leverage. I mean, the sheer logistics of it, and it's just the two of you. I mean, did you have any kind of contacts at any of the, you know, you contacting Sonia Friedman and DreamWorks? Luckily, luckily, so Chris, who runs the props company, you know, they have supervised a lot of these shows. He has very good contacts in the West End. And, you know, as we're very good in the creative industries, we're resourceful when we need to be. We had a contact then at the PR company, Corner Shop, who they put out, they agreed to do like a first press release for us. This was, I think, maybe on the, like just at the end of April, like maybe April 30th. And the press release was to go out on the Monday to say, or it was going to be sent out on the Monday to be pr- published on the Wednesday. So we had like a couple of days where we were going to like do some like test orders with friends and family. And then the press release went out on Monday morning. And I was just like sat in my lounge drinking some coffee. And then suddenly like the Instagram and Twitter accounts that we had set up that we were going to get, you know, we were going to ease our way in. It went mad. We had like 500 people a minute trying to buy this t-shirt because the password to the website had gone out in the press release. We put in this password to allow the press to have a preview of it all before Wednesday, and it all went out on Monday. The first day was a nightmare. The website went down many times because we weren't prepared for that much traffic. You know, so we had like, at one point, I think we had like 750 people a minute looking at the website. Thankfully, we've we've kept, you know, we keep we keep bringing in orders and, We've got, and we've got a really brilliant team of um, people from the West End community who are helping us pack these orders every day. So they're, they're all volunteers and, you know, we have like everyone. We have stage managers, we have choreographers, we have actors. We have like a core team of people that call it the factory. They're every day packing the t-shirts and it's been really lovely. I imagine it gives all of you a sense of community and creativity because most of these people won't be working in the theatre again until autumn at the earliest. I guess, you know, the the rough date of October, November for, you know, the potential theatre to be able to resume 
is uh, you know it's a good thing it gives it gives at least the possibility for panto if panto doesn't happen it's going to be such a you know a make or break thing for people because yeah. you know it's going to be the, it's also it's going to be the only time to earn some money before you've got to pay your tax most of us have had almost a year with no work it's it's also that striking that balance isn't it between mm. rushing back and you know we do, we it's got to all be done in the, in the correct manner so that theaters don't close because what's the point yeah. of opening them if they're just going to enclose because they can't afford to be open. Yeah. Or if there's a sudden spike related to a certain theatre or something. Exactly. You know, it's, what, yeah. ha- what happens if London opens and then they decide London's got to go into a local lockdown? Yeah. It'd be even harder to, to police it in somewhere like London because everywhere is connected. Yeah. Um, it's, it's that kind of thing where people are being like, you know, well, I, I like if theatre starts up again, I don't want to wear a face mask. And like, personally, I'm like, well, then don't come. Yeah. If, you know, if you're not exempt from, you know, if you're not exempt because of a medical reason and you just don't want to wear a mask, then I personally think that the theatre industry doesn't want you to come. Yeah. You know, because if you can't, if you can't follow like a basic thing for other people, you know, ent- ent- entertainment, unfortunately for us, is a luxury. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as it's very necessary for like, you know, creatively and it is a luxury, a luxury thing to be able to have. So, you know, it shouldn't take, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to, shouldn't not be able to follow a few, a few little rules just to help us get back up and running and yeah. keep it going. And as you say, it's not, because it's not about you, it's about other people, but it seems to be the height of oppression to have to wear a mask for two hours. There's a lot of people that want to get back to work. So figuring out how we can do it safely. And I think that will be people's number one priority. And, you know, I think, I, I hope that something will come out of all of these pilots that they're doing. And, and it'll just keep growing and developing. Yeah. One of the musicals that's, that will be reopening is Sleepless in Seattle, which now I, I understand you can't really say too much about that because it's still in the very early stages of figuring out exactly how that's going to work. We, ha- we, have a, we have a start date. We have been told that we will be recommencing rehearsals on the 17th of August. As I said, it was quite a weird experience because we stopped as we started to tech the show. So we're kind of in this unique position because we rehearsed a show, but we didn't like set it completely. Mm. Because we did it in the rehearsal room, and then we started moving it to the stage. So it's still it's still weirdly like a product that can be adjusted. And luckily, we're very big. The stage is huge, and you know the band are very much away from everyone, and the wings are quite spacious. So I, you know, we've got a lot of things in our favour, and the auditorium itself is massive. And because it's because as I mentioned, it's an old TV studio. There's a lot of space. There's a lot mm. of space front of house. There's a, you know, there are. There are hundreds of toilets. So it's it's really quite a good building to at least give it a go because yeah. there's no trying to funnel audience down like old historic buildings. I think it's something like 2,000 seats. You know, I think currently they're planning to go to an audience of 350, 390, something like that, which allows them to space everyone out. And there's, there's no booking seats as such. What you do is you book the section you would like to sit in yeah. and then they will allocate your seat to announce, you know, the social distancing. So it's, it's kind of the perfect thing because we're not, what we're not trying to do is we're going to start rehearsals, but what we're not going to try and do is figure out how to socially distance a pre-existing thing hopefully down the road at some point there'll be the decision of how we unsocially distance the show <laughs> so you know how we make you know those moments even more intimate and mm. you know i mean luckily we've got a great company and a great cast and you know we're working working with equity and working with salt and the mu and beck too and you know so everyone's kind of involved because we are like you know we are kind of our guinea pig 
you know, we're in a tough position because at some point I'm going to have to get a job. So whether I go and work in a supermarket or whether I go back and work in theatre, you know, obviously there's going to be a bit of risk regardless, but I would mm. totally rather go back and, you know, go backstage and work doing theatre. And Because there's some people, like, if you work on a Cameron Mackintosh show, you've been told that you're not going back until March. So, yes. you know, it's so nice that the the possibility of going back in a few weeks' time and maybe 2020 won't have been so bad financially and... That's also kind of what we're all thinking about. We're like, well, you know, any some money right now would be great. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Theatre might stop, but bills don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. My landlord's not gone, well, you know, your theatre's not working, but, you know, so we'll stop the rent. Another thing we ask our guests about on this podcast is audience experiences. Stage management, we don't get to, unless you've had like a show stop, and then you do get to experience the audience, which is always never usually the best. You're having to fix it in front of the audience. They're just sat there watching, you know, we spend our careers working backstage. We chose not to be on stage. But then, you know, there are rare moments where we, you know, you get to experience theatre and I feel like you get to experience it as a kind of an audience point of view. And one of my favourite experiences was when Punch Drunk's Drown Man opened in London because I had never, never known their work before. I'd heard of them, but I I never really knew what their their work was. And, you know, they opened their show in Paddington at the old that old post office. And it was just insane. You know, this huge, sprawling, like, five-story warehouse building that they had transformed into, like, the world of, you know, a 1940s uh, film studio and, like, sort of the town. You know, she went through one level and it was like a forest and then another level and it was like a campsite with, like, an old, like, you know, western like bar and you know other levels you were like going through like the basement of this like film studio and you know it was all dimly lit we just went and we weren't didn't really know what to expect you know we donned the masks and you kind of were put into a lift and went to like the basement and then they shoved my friend out of the lift and like shut the shutter on her so she was in the basement and I went up to like the top floor with the rest of these people you know I'd never and then I basically spent like the first hour like going what the hell is this you know I I had never really experienced promenade theatre before and you know it's it's certainly a lot on the senses it was incredible and I think you know it was a way that you could just go there and you could escape whatever was happening in the outside world you know like there there was only like one place you were allowed to like take your mask off and get a drink apart from that it was you kept it on and you just enjoyed this experience and I remember always going to like the bar at a certain point and being just take my mask off for like a breather just to be <laughs> like oh okay have a little sit down have a 20 minutes and then go back out there. And, you know, I think I went to see The Drowned Man six or seven times when it was on in London because I just wanted to keep taking other people. And it was quite nice is as someone who, you know, works backstage, it takes a lot to impress me because a lot of the things I know how it's done and I will be looking for those sort of elements. So for something like Punch Drunk, you just were able to forget. You could just enjoy it. And I felt like I was enjoying it the same as everyone else, which was quite nice. (laughs) And I understand you also have a story about dealing with audience members as part of the stage management team. I worked on secret cinemas, Romeo and uh, Juliet in Gunnersbury Park. It was 5,000 audience members a night. 
the whole evening is broken up into five minute sections like 7 705 710 715 and that's how we know where everyone and everything is supposed to be at the same time so we had a stage management team of six three asm sort of on the ground roaming in the film version of roman juliet the Baz Luhrmann one there is various vehicles and various cars but each house the montagues and the capulets have basically a car reach that is like significant of them in the film so they were replicating real life and in the kind of pre-show what we call it which was you know the the first three and a half hours which led to like a big finale scene we had various cars and they were moving around the uh the audience and moving around the sort of the, the park and everything because it was a, hu- a huge section of the park that was gated in and everything and the audience were free to do what they want which included drinking because it was very much it was called like secret summer so it was very much like a festival feel on the most part they were great you know we had to kind of chaperone a car so you'd have to walk in front of it and it'd be moving around the site but for the final section they had to all appear in the middle of this so there's this huge like stage that mimics the one in the film huge kind of like riot scene for the end once that big scene had finished we then had something like a minute 30 to get the cars back to their starting positions for the show. I've never done anything more stressful than trying to move cars through crowds of drunk people because people, when they're watching theatre and they think, just forget that a car is a real thing. And you say, I need you to move out of the way. And they're like, why? And you're like, (laughs) because I've asked you to. And (laughs) this huge yellow truck has got to get out of here. How I describe it is doing that show was like doing a show stop for five hours. You were so aware of the time. And after doing a couple of shows, we knew that if we hadn't got the car moving by a certain time, we knew that it just wasn't going to make it. If it was raining or anything like that, we had to move the cars at half speed because the council were worried about us like tearing up the ground. So that's what I love about stage management is that every show is different. You just kind of figure it out. It's a, it's a mad industry. Yeah, it really is. The last part of the show, I ask the guests to talk about a charity or cause or a venue that is particularly close to their heart that they may even be involved in. So what would you like to tell us about? So, I mean, my my my, my charity, I guess, is... <laughs> um, is the the theatre support fund which is which can be found at uh, www.theatresupportfund.co.uk as we say we're met, we're selling a range of the show must go on merchandise and the money goes between is split between well, three charities the nhs charities so that's for their their covid-19 urgent appeal and then there's the fleabag fund which is being run by soho theatre and that provides cash grants and you can apply on their website. And then there's Acting for Others, who represent, who are an umbrella charity. They represent 14 different charities that cover all of the spectrum of people who work in theatre. So whether you're a lighting technician, a dresser, you work in box office, you know, whether you're a front house staff, there is a charity on there that will represent you and they can, you know, they can give you help. So if anyone listening wants to purchase any of the merchandise sold on the Theatre Support Fund website, they can use the link in the episode description. All of the money goes to the NHS COVID response charities and to people who work in theatre who have no idea whether their job or their industry is secure or when they might be back at work. And this isn't just about actors, writers, directors, designers, stage managers, technicians. It's also about cleaners and bar staff and hospitality and cafe workers, box office ushers, 
volunteers, front of house, admin staff, community outreach, education practitioners, anybody and everybody who keeps the theatre running and greets you when you arrive. 72% of the theatre workforce are freelancers. Many of them won't qualify for government support schemes and they may not have applied to the Arts Council or other forms of funding. Well, you know, they might have, but they were unsuccessful for whatever reason and a lot of them are facing job losses and redundancies. Bristol Old Vic, the Traverse Theatre in Edinburgh, the Royal Exchange in Manchester, the Little Theatre in Leicester, the Birmingham Rep, the Birmingham Hippodrome, Theatre Royal Stratford East, Theatre Royal Plymouth, the Old Vic, the Crucible in Sheffield, Theatre Battle Lake in Keswick, ATG, which covers loads of theatres, including the Donmar Warehouse and the Lyceum in London, they're all in redundancy consultations, and the National Theatre is sacking 400 of the casual workers. All of them are paying rent in London, and they're on 80% of minimum wage under the furlough scheme and now they need to find alternative employment which isn't going to be easy because who's hiring only 500 million of the government's 1.57 billion pound art package is going towards theater and in reality it's more like 100 million because that 500 million is being split between comedy venues music venues museums galleries and theater now that's more money than most people could ever dream of so it's not like it's small fry but it won't stretch far across the whole country and their workforces especially when a lot of theaters despite government of Advice won't be able to open until 2021. And it's not like this merchandise on the Theatre Support Fund website is just any old tat. <laughs> it's things like mugs and notebooks and tote bags and face masks. It's, you know, great gift ideas if you've got birthdays coming up or something. Or, you know, we all have to wear masks when we go to the shops right now, so they're quite useful. Obviously, everybody's struggling though, so if you can't afford to buy anything, don't and don't feel bad about it anything and everything will help even if it's just sharing a website on your social media or with your friends and your family but the most important thing is you keep safe and you look after yourselves that's my little rant over sorry damien you've been just so brilliant thank you for joining us and really well done on the theater support fund because everything you're doing is incredibly impressive and inspiring so thank you and i wish you all the best Publicity design by Ben Hollands and voiceover by Rebecca Clee. We'd love to hear your favourite audience experiences and how COVID-19 has affected you. So feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at MissingAnAward. If you want to donate or find out more about the charities our guest was talking about, you can find the links in the description below. In the meantime, keep safe. Keep well and be kind. Next time, we're joined by playwright and head of the National Student Drama Festival, James Phillips. At the very beginning of lockdown, we were about to do the, the annual festival and I cancelled that um, because of the, the pandemic and sort of unproduced it. And then two days later, started the process of reproducing it as a completely online festival open like two weeks after that. And that was sort of the first time anyone had done anything like that. We had people joining in from all over the world, 10,000 participants. I mean, it was not without immense stress at the beginning. I hadn't even heard of Zoom when I when I said I'm going to do it. You know, you're, you're entirely dependent on internet connections and stuff. We thought we'd lost Mark Ravenhill, for example, during the beginning of 
his workshop, but still. It's allowed us to really widen the reach, both in participants and people. We've launched this, this thing called the Bigger Room Project. So kind of once a month, we have a series of online masterclasses and workshops and debates which um, everything's free, everything's open to everyone. We've had some wonderful guests, you know, Rosamund Pike, Amy Waller-Bridge, Armando Inucci, Indira Varma. That part of it has been very successful. 